Hello, and welcome to Weed and Grub. You can't send, you can, in fact, I encourage it. Why am I starting with you can't? Please send more midnight lasagna videos. It's the greatest thing in the world to pull a hot lasagna out of the oven and then send some hot lasagna content your way. That bubble, (laughs) that sizz, Mm -hmm. that juicy, juicy, gooey drip. It's, yeah, it's, it's been fun. I spent like... I guess like a solid two hours assembling that lasagna yesterday and it was the most peaceful couple of hours. It was just so nice. It's so meditative, you know? The sauce, the layering, the cheese, the baking, you know, when it starts smelling up the house and you know how good it's gonna be. And then when you pull it out and it just looks so glorious, it was very satisfying. It was so sexy. Mm -hmm. More times than not, if I get a message or a DM or anything, Starting around 11.45, you know it's up to no good. So most of the time I never respond because <laughs> like anything after the witching hour is gonna send me to hell, you know? But mm-hmm. when, you get a, when you get a midnight lasagna video, the inside of my phone filled up with steam because it was so hot. <laughs> it was a very telegenic lasagna, I will say. Like when I pulled it out of the oven, I was so pleased with how it looked and then when Walt came home late last night and I served him a piece he looked at it and he uh I can't remember what he thought I'd done to it but he had some question about how I had made the cheese like because it had absorbed all of the tomato paste and it bubbled up like the perfect orange oh he asked me if I'd use cheddar he was like did you use orange cheese in this and I was like no it's that's how the tomato paste actually bubbled and sizzed its way into the crust so it's like actually this beautiful orange color it's the best looking lasagna I've ever made, I have to say. And it was a truly awesome, super simple classic recipe. Um, Is it by, beef? Uh, I used, well, the, actually I did change one thing. The recipe called for a sweet or hot Italian sausage and I used half sweet Italian sausage and half ground beef. That sounds awesome. It oh. was fucking awesome. Oh. And so did yeah. you did you do any, because I haven't seen the inside. I haven't seen a, uh, what would Oh, I haven't like sent a you cross, a cross section? I haven't seen a cross section yet. So I don't even uh, know what to expect for the layers. Oh, I'll send you a hot cross later, Mike. <laughs> I'll send you a hot cross, a hot lasagna cross later tonight. Look in your <laughs> DMs for some hot lasagna action right around 11.45 tonight. It'd be so funny. <laughs> like you're laying in bed with your significant other and all of a sudden like you hear the lotion drawer or the vibrator drawer open and then you like, peek over and they're looking at a lasagna cross section. <laughs> That's pretty dirty. You know, I feel like there's so much that you can get away with flirting with other people just by sending food pics you know like when i was getting whisk pics it felt so salacious when someone would slide into my dms with a big fat whisk and i get that same feeling like texting food to anyone i'm like this feels like i kind of just want to show you this dish that i'm really proud of but it feels flirty (laughs) yeah totally what's the cross-section like did you do any veg vegetable in there like a wilted 
Nothing. Nope. So it's just meat, no cheese, t- sauce. Yeah. The sauce was just like a really classic um, tomato paste, crushed tomatoes, and whole peeled tomatoes that I mushed up into it with onion, garlic, and the two types of meat. Very simple, salt and pepper. And then the layering was just that with noodles. And then um, four stacks of sauce and the ricotta, mozzarella, Parmesan mixture, noodles four times. And then the top was covered with mozzarella and parm. The whole thing was very satisfying, I have to say. And I made a really lovely, simple green salad to go along with it with chiffonaded basil and scallions and two kinds of greens and a, a homemade balsamic dressing. I it really, I felt like, yeah, like you said, it was like a hug from the inside. Yeah, comfort food. Comfort mm-hmm. food. The hug from the inside. Mm-hmm. God damn. Um, what up, Mary Jane? How's it going, Mike? So good. Welcome to Weed and Grub, everyone. How are you? I am uh, excited to talk to you about lasagna. Okay. Uh, well, this is a <laughs> podcast about lasagna and comedy. And cannabis. And culture. And cooking. And calling shit out. And kind of more calling shit out today. Calling shit out. Yeah, Super for calling sure. shit out. Squared. Yeah. Calling shit out. Calling things. Calling it what it is with our fantastic guest. Andrew T is amazing. So excited for this episode. I have one more lasagna question before we move on for you though. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about cold lasagna? It's the greatest. It you is. Know right? I don't like hot food. Yeah. I know, but like, <laughs> you know, you keep waffling on that, waffle frying on that. The satisfaction of, that I get when I pull the hot dish out of the oven and it is in its perfect glory, like hot and bubbly is, you know, it cannot be denied, but I love that mouthful from the fridge that's also you know kind of gelatinous i'm a weirdo what can i say i just like all different temps but i like that sort of solid lasagna bite when it's sort of like all stuck together and cold yes there's that weird (laughs) like fat separation from the Mm -hmm. meat that happens Mm -hmm. in the cold corners of the lasagna pan that jelly is kind of my favorite bite i haven't thought about that in forever i'm so glad you brought up the gelatinous nature of a cold lasagna i would straight up if i were to cater if i were a caterer which i don't think anyone would ever want me to be because i would just serve weird snacks but i would love (laughs) here's here's it here's an (laughs) onion with a raisin stuffed in it (laughs) here's my favorite sandwich which is actually mustard with as you say onions i love a mustard and onion sandwich no i would serve delicious snacks i make a fantastic deviled egg listen i would i would be great at it but i would definitely try and get people to eat things that they didn't think of as especially finger foods like you know when the the canapes get passed i would say that a little square cube of cold lasagna on a toothpick would go over fucking gangbusters yeah definitely at a weed party i mean that would be like a great way to get started Lasagna cubes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the week. Yeah, the amouge bouche is a is the uh, gelatinous corner of a lasagna cube. That's amazing. You make me think <laughs> about when Anne Burrell yelled at me on Worst Cooks. We were doing a grilled cheese challenge outside, and it was a disaster because we were on a farm and we're using a hot plate to make a grilled cheese. So it's never getting hot enough. The wind is blowing everywhere. Hay is getting in our sandwich and in our eyes. But I made the grilled cheese, and when the cheese melted out onto the skillet, there was those crispy bits of cheese. And so Mm -hmm. when I um, cut the sandwich into triangles, I put one of the crispy bits on top of the sandwich as a like heightened garnish. Mm -hmm. And Anne Burrell blasted me for it and was like, that wasn't the directions. That wasn't what we said to do. You know, if you want to be here, you got to treat this seriously. It's all about discipline. And she was like, why did you do that? And I was like, because the crispy bit 
on the pan is better than the actual grilled cheese. And she was like, nah, 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 and yelled at me. And then camera's cut and she leans in and she was like, great call. That's the absolute best bit in the world. Like, no. so tasty. Because, you know, you got to do it for the drama and for the cut. And I understood that. And we had fun about wow. it. But yeah, she was like, oh, 100%. So like a crispy just crispy cheese maybe as mm-hmm. like the second amuse-bouche a lasagna cube and some crispy cheese just absolutely i mean that's really like what a parmesan crisp is right is just the that little waffer waffly thin cheese bit you know you talking about that makes me think that i would love to be a fly on the wall for uh top chef filming like just how do they go in on those people because those are true chefs at the top of their game i mean many of them on this um, season that you and I are kind of watching together, the Portland season, are James Beard nominated or even award-winning chefs. Yeah. And so how how do you like go in on someone who's, you know, it, it's just, I'm, I'm kind of interested, like how much drama are they cutting out or capturing and then like choosing to leave out? I think it's interesting because I've seen every single season. I'm such a fan. And I think that Calicchio and then Padma to an extent, like he maintained, he, I think he might have fought for the integrity of that show. Because, it's like a no drama show, yeah, right? Yeah, like it used yeah. to be. It used to be high key drama. I remember like whoopsie daisies and dun dun duns. And oh, kinda, remember when Alan, uh, you know, they all fucking held Marcel down, didn't they? Shave Marcel's head, like something that was like a crazy whole like fucking storyline. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then at a certain point, they were like, "Yo, let these motherfuckers cook. They're cooks. Let them cook. Yeah, let's go. Yeah, yeah. Like the biggest drama that I've seen on." this season was when that um, chef elected like not to come back because he was hurt and it was like that was kind of a more you know a bit of a story yeah and he was over it anyway he wasn't enjoying himself I don't think he no he was ready to go yeah yeah whatever I get that (laughs) I want to go home (laughs) I'm tired Oh, oh man. man. Do you want to get to some news this week? I do want to get to some news. Before uh, we get to the news, though, I do want to say that I, because um, we're working on this book proposal right now, I would love to come up with a, a canapé section. Uh, I'm just putting it out in the air on this podcast Absolutely. right now. Absolutely. I love we gotta that. we got to have some past foods, past the joint and past the food section of canapés and cannabis. Canapés, hey, uh, no, I'm not going to do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry fucking hell like nobody's ever fucking thought of that before nobody's committed as hard and then immediately retracted it as hard as you I hated it so much i hated <laughs> it i'm walking that all the way back okay grubla cassette here we go <laughs> oh, shit. Uh, the grubla cassette is presented by ocb rolling papers the largest rolling paper brand in the world crafted naturally since 1918 ocb offers a full line of plant to puff papers made with sustainable fibers farmed from within a 500 kilometer kilometer radius of their facility in France, which is powered by 100% green energy. In 2020, OCB rolled out America's first ultra-thin, slow-burning bamboo rolling papers and cones. They're even burning, no-tear, GMO-free, and vegan. Not all rolling papers are created equal. OCB offers a premium smoking experience that we call Harmony on High. Uh, uh. Ask for OCB wherever you buy your papers and sample their entire line of products. Plus, visit OCBUSA.com and follow OCB on Instagram at OCB underscore 
USA. Thank you, OCB, for supporting our show. And if you dig weed and grub, please check out OCB. Yeah, support them because that supports us. Yay! What's our story this week, Mary Jane? The Grubble Gazette this week is that New York has banned Delta 8 THC. Crazy. Yeah, it's it's kind of a wild time for Delta 8 because, uh, you know, it's um, sourced from hemp. And so it's under the 2018 Farm Bill, which legalized hemp for sale across the country. Anything sourced from hemp was also thought to be legal. So Delta 8 has become a really popular alternative to Delta 9 THC because it does produce a similar, although not exactly alike, but a similar sense of euphoria to like that classic THC high. And several states have banned it. There are 12 states, I think, now total that have banned it. And New York just joined the list. So this is uh, being reported from mjbizdaily.com. And it just says that the Delta THC, Delta 8 THC ban was issued by the state health department this week in an updated batch of hemp regulations that cover any THC isomers derived from hemp. I only have tried Delta 8 once and I tried it on this podcast and we talked about it. And Mm -hmm. the Delta 8 that I tried, I really didn't like. So I don't want to say that that's all Delta 8, just like it's not all weed. Like maybe there's one that would work for me. The the part for me that is um, not a red flag, but something to at least keep an eye on is that as cannabis comes online and becomes federal, they are immediately squashing out anything that they're not interested in being a part of. And so I think that like that, that for me is the, the problematic part is like everything was no. And now that we're yes on this, we're no on everything else. Right. Well, I think it uh, it makes sense, you know, that regulations are tightening because, you know, New York State just legalized cannabis. Um, So, yeah, it makes sense that they would just take a look at everything and and start laying down the rules. And I think it's, you know, it's something that I'd like to do a deeper dive into and learn more about why exactly all of these states have made the decision to ban Delta 8, because I'm seeing all of these Delta 8 companies crop up right now. You know, so many of them are even just launching right now. Like I'm getting um, press releases all the time for like new Delta 8, you know, legal for sale everywhere. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I am going to learn more about it and come back to you with it. Okay. I had a couple opinions on it off jump and I was also <laughs> put in my place a little bit, so I may as well go on record about it. But I was joking on Twitter about how Delta 8 is like, um, the the knockoff Halloween costume where it's like you can either get Beetlejuice, which would be weed, or you can mm-hmm. get the one that says Juice Demon, and it's that's Delta 8 to me. And uh, I don't know. I thought it was a pretty funny tweet. It had good traction, but then somebody came and they were like, hey, weed's illegal in my state. Delta 8 is my only option, and so I'm going to ride with it until my state gets its act together. And mm. that was a nice reminder, as, as easy as it is to make fun of, and I still stand by the joke. I think it was very funny, but I also mm-hmm. wanted to be conscientious and I appreciated them like replying on that and saying like yo but also this definitely like it's it doesn't serve us to be purists you know what I mean like we I am not here to be uh dictating to anyone else what their intake of anything should be and if that's what's available to you and that's what you're choosing to um unwind with or medicate with then that's great uh I want to learn more about why these states are choosing to come down on it so hard that they're saying that it's entirely illegal. It's not even that they're regulating it for sale. They are banning it. Right. So, And also, it wasn't that good of a joke. I deleted it. I just wanted to also walk my way it. back. You, you got to walk back. I got to walk back. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get to our amazing guest, uh, Andrew T., should we do our Buds of the Week? Yeah, let's do Buds of the Week. Can I do my Bud of the Week first? Sure. Okay. I'd like to shout out 
Mary Jane Runway at Mary Jane Runway on IG. Lisa, the brains and designer behind Mary Jane Runway, has been a friend since I moved to LA. She's just a wonderful person, and she has made all of the weed leaf things that I wear. The kimono that I love so much—that's this beautiful flowy robe that's patterned with pot leaves—and then that the sequin jacket, I think, is the one that everyone always wants to know about anytime I wear it out or I post a picture of me in it. It's a uh, just an incredible custom bomber that's sparkly sequins. So follow at Mary Jane Runway on IG to see all of her beautiful designs. And yeah, Lisa's just an all-around beautiful human. That's awesome. My word of the week this week is Jay Walker at J-A-Y-W-A-L-K-R, Jay Walker. And I did a Facebook series with him called Ass Airport Security Squad. And we hit it off. He's so talented. And he is on a new show on Stars called Run the World. I can't wait to watch it. So if you're looking for something new, check out Run the World on Stars. Support the homie Jay. Uh, here he is with his shirt off, Mary Jane. Oh, okay. All right. What? Where do you? Where does he live now? <laughs> 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 Whew, I'm the just temperature went up in here by like three degrees. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you mm-hmm. little lasagna red. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so that's my butt <laughs> of the week. Everybody follow. <laughs> Everybody follow Jay. You want to get to our VIB, our very important bud? Andrew T. Yes, I do. Andrew T. Such a smart, kind, cool human being. And Yo Is This Racist is an amazing podcast that he and Tawny do together. Everyone should be listening to Yo Is This Racist. Go subscribe right now and do yourself a big fucking favor. Yeah. That's it, right? <laughs> That's kind of it. I mean, we just kind had such it. a great conversation. Like, it, it took some interesting twists and turns. We talked a lot about a bunch of stuff that I didn't think we'd talk about. It was really, really cool. And he's just yeah. fucking awesome. And follow him on Twitter. He's at Andrew T, which is T-I. Um, d- like, don't, he's a do not miss on Twitter. <laughs> and he doesn't miss. He doesn't. You want to get to it? Yes, please. Without further ado, here is our interview with Andrew T. You speak like somebody who wrote about starting therapy in their 40s for Esquire. Yeah. did I did not realize. Here's the thing. I did not read between uh, or ask any questions of uh, the good folks at Esquire. I don't think that piece is going to come out widely online at all. And I just assumed it would, actually. So I haven't really promoted it. But yeah, I got to write a little thing about yeah starting therapy late in life. Um, it was it was like a personal essay. It was like a thousand mm-hmm. words. It was like some shit you would write in college. Um, but um, yeah, it was like a you know a thousand ish word personal essay that like when I went to go look at it, there it was like Hemingway's written for Esquire, and I was like, oh, it's like that kind of shit. Like it's real. Um, wow, it's yeah, a big deal, man. I and in print, think. yeah. So it's basically print only, um, print and and online archive only. Yeah, and I don't think. I'm trying to think, I don't think I've ever had anything published in print before. Um, but yeah, so so uh, the the therapist uh, I go to now is a teletherapist, and a thing that I didn't really find place to talk about in the Esquire piece, partially because it felt a tiny bit icky. Um, is that I was having a lot of trouble actually finding a therapist in like November of last year. And I really, that was like sort of like my, okay, I'm really fucked up. I need help um, time. But uh, 
and I didn't, I didn't look as hard as I humanly could have. And there's a bit of snobbery that I was like, well, I don't, I probably shouldn't go to a sliding scale place. Cause like I'm making enough money to like, you know, and I have like the writer's guild insurance, like covers therapy very well. So I was like, I, I should go to a quote unquote good one. <laughs> um, that's bad. A Beverly Hills. Yeah. Like it's, a Maserati therapy. It truly is exactly my train of thought. Uh, it's not good that I had it, but it's what happened in my brain. Um, but so like it was actually impossible to find um, a therapist like that who was looking for, who was taking new clients. Um, and then, and this is the kind of icky spawn con part of it, um, is better help started um sponsoring yo is this racist so we got like free um time to do therapy and it was really and i um but then i've heard like so many people who are much more experienced with therapy it's like better help's not good for this and that reason so mm. but i really like the experience and again this is this is the like i have nothing to compare it to of it which is like i don't fucking know and then my thought and this might be incorrect and I hope I'm not saying this to y'all before I'm saying it to my actual therapist, but um, part of me is thinking that, like, at least for someone who is, like, so unpracticed with any type of self-reflection, um, I think it wouldn't matter because, to me, I, I suspect... I don't know. Listeners, tweet at me and tell me why this is wrong. But, like, I truly do think it's that, like, 20 minutes before therapy when I'm, like the fuck am I think? what do I want to talk about in therapy today? Um, that is actually the, the thing that is the, the thing that I know I have very few, um, I've, I'm unpracticed at even doing that. Um, so to me, that is so valuable that I don't think it would matter. Like I legitimately think like an actual psychic would be, or sorry, an actual <laughs> fake psychic. You get, you, you get what I'm saying. Not a magic person, but like basically someone who like, like just anyone who I was paying to listen to my, um, what's what I'm thinking about, mm -hmm. um, would be almost identical. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know if that's it's, true. I'm sure that's ignorant in many ways, but yeah. It's like the, the preparing of the meal is as meaningful as the eating of the meal. Yeah. Yeah, like the carving out that time and thinking about what you're going to say is as important as the time in which you're saying it to a person. I, I think there's a world where it might be more for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But I, I don't know. And I'm sure that's fucked up in some way or another. I think it's cool because I only really know you through like Twitter snippets and we've met each other once or twice in the real world. Like, yeah, just even even listening to you as this racist um, isn't going to be the same as having you on here but just yeah. even the way that you choose your words perfectly and then backtrack forwards to come forward with a more truthful way to say what you're saying is, <laughs> it's cool like it's cool it's a cool way to to get to know you a bit it's kind of an edit yeah but i think that's what i do in therapy which is like talk 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 wait no that's messed up let me try that again i also wonder if it's like because you're an artist who takes takes the world and the things that you feel and see about the world and put them into projects or scripts or, um, you know, things that allow you to get out what is inside you in a way that you're really happy with, or at least gets it out. Like, I wonder if that also 
plays into the idea of therapy being a place for you to just babble a bit and see where it all goes because you're taking yeah. care of yourself in all of these other areas. I yeah. think I think that may um yeah, I th- well, so the other thing and this is uh which is that like I I don't know, so I've only as far as like um narrative, well, that's not true now. Um but so so mixed dish was my first like like really like I'd written for Robot Chicken and I'd written like sketch stuff and I did a Yosis Racist pilot, but like, you know, the first like kind of like real narrative like um job I'd had. And there is that very um so so I'm about to say something that is common on some level to every writer's room, but um I was told and I believe it, but I guess I don't know for sure, that like the Kenya Barris camp is more this than others, which is a very confessional, very like personal story driven. Like, like everything can come, you know, comes back. Um, everything, almost everything on the screen kind of, you know, happened in some way on mixed dish and apparently on blackish to like somebody in the room. Um, so it also kind of like, probably, I wonder if I would have been a better, uh, just a better like writer there too, to, it, it, that became that was maybe the the nascent beginnings of like this like all right let's just fucking like lay it all out and like I'm I'm like working on something right now that is um, uh, significantly more autobiographical and um, with with a friend of mine who is um, uh, we we don't know each other that well outside of this project actually but like. We, there is a lot of like, um, you know, I'm I'm getting a lot better at being like, this is the personal story that makes this thing. This is how I sort of like make my case for why this character should do this, and sort of vice versa. And then also bringing up, I'm I'm now like better at being like, hey, this thing that happened to the two of us, that you did this thing, I did this thing. This is the dynamic that we want. So I do think actually like, um, I would have been a better writer um, with. Uh, at least just practice at this stuff. It is also funny too, like what I thought being in a writer's room would be like. I do think, and I think this is like, it is closer to like the robot chicken room, which is like, obviously in robot chicken, no one gives a shit about anyone's feelings um, because that's not what the show is. It's not about feelings, um, not because they're bad people. Um, yeah, but, it's about Doogie Hauser becoming yeah. a robot who beats up Voltron. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, there's just no, like, there's no need for that stuff, so that's not that kind of writer's room. But I, I really liked being like, right, let's, even in comedy, like, what's, what are all the, what are all the emotions here? Like, why, why is, you know, what's a real emotion? What's a real, like, way to, for this person to justify doing these things that will be dumb? And then, you know. Hopefully it's funny. I'd love to hear a little bit about your evolution as, as a writer. I mean, I know that you've been in LA for a while and you've worked on mm-hmm. so many things, but what was the, how do, how do you track leaving the Midwest and coming to LA? Oh sort of, gosh. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So this is like pretty long. So, you know, I have, or it's not long, but it's, um, so I didn't start even like trying to be a writer until I was like 32, 33. Um, I, and this, it's like one of those things where it's so like, this feels a little bit like the way, like in the early 2000s, every one of those like Asian chefs had like the exact same backstory. It's like, 
Everyone laughed at me when I brought noodles in a thermos, but now they want to eat my dumplings. And then I discovered Wu-Tang Clan when I was 15 years old, and I was like, there's a different way to be. And I was like, fucking all of you have this exact same backstory. Like, give me a fucking break. I'm not saying it didn't happen, but, like, it got less interesting every time I heard it. So I'm going to tell this story that I think, you know, you've heard before, and every time you hear it subsequent to this, it's going to be less interesting. But, like... So I'm like Chinese American. I was born in Ann Arbor. Um, needless to say, uh, I don't never growing up knew anyone uh, who wrote for television or was a comedian. Um, like I didn't see myself represented or see, you know, like even like um, like Margaret Cho, uh, who was uh, sort of like on, uh, I believe, like all American girl was on, like, I don't know, at some point it was, there was, it was just like, to me, very Korean. And it was like, still not me. Um, but so, so it is one of those things where like, I was like, Oh, I can never, I could never do that. Um, I moved to New York. I went to school at Columbia, stayed in New York, um, became friends with lots of, um, standups, I guess, partially because of just the people I knew. Um, and, I was working at Comedy Central as like a digital media producer at the time when it like was not cool to be a digital media producer. Um, <laughs> not that it's that cool now, but <laughs> <laughs> but truly it was like less than no respect like in the company. And, you know, just kind of like slowly worked my way up largely through attrition. I think I was a pretty bad employee slash no, I was a very bad employee, but you know, I was like smart enough to mostly get shit done on time and like whatever they fire enough people or people leave and eventually you have an okay job. So comedy central moved me out to LA. Um, yeah, I was just kind of like, I guess I'll just be the funniest, you know, person who's basically ultimately responsible for writing HTML, like at least two or three times a week. You know, that kind of thing. It was like, you know, the funniest, essentially computer programmer, project manager kind of person. And then I, you know, just like through like drinking in Echo Park and meeting people, (laughs) I was like, oh, you motherfuckers are comedy writers. And specifically, I guess I won't name him, but I met like, you know, the hot Asian writer at the time. And, you know, it, it was just one of those I was like, okay, if this asshole can literally be like the best that we got, um, not saying he's even bad, but I was like, I can, I got a place. I can do this. Yeah. Um, and then right around then I started Yo's This Racist, um, the blog, because this is going to sound, this is the whole industry. My only experience is with Comedy Central, but it's literally the whole industry. So I was working for the network and like so often I was the only person of color in like most rooms. So like anytime like the question is this racist came up like people would either ask me explicitly or you just kind of like feel the eyeballs on you and it's like yeah obviously it's racist (laughs) um and you know also like it's not ideal that i'm the spokesperson for every non-white person so often like just you know and it's not like only comedy central and it's not like a hundred percent. There were obviously other people of color there, but just not as much. I was in a writer's room that I will not talk about, but there was one female writer in there mm-hmm. who was also Asian. And so anything that came up, every dude just looked over to them yeah. and was like, "Yeah, hey, you know, yeah. let's dial this in. And that yeah. was a crazy experience. Yeah. yeah. And that's like 
relatively speaking, for a lot of writers' rooms, a quote-unquote good slash responsible. Not like a good experience, but like for the for the male showrunners, I'm sure it's like gotta gotta check in. Let's be responsible. You know, like it's like the even the like doing good version of it is still pretty shitty for the actual personnel involved, and like. You know, it's the tokenism of it and et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, so I started Yo's This Racist because I was like, if you ask if you ask some fucking stranger, you know it's racist. What's wrong with you? <laughs> um, yeah, and then that that um, got me a manager and that became, then it became a podcast. And then um, I sort of concurrently sold a feature uh, pitch and I was very lucky to be hired to write it um knowing what i know now i dare i say it was a little irresponsible of the producers um and you know so i wrote i wrote uh, a a movie for um uh a, a, a very famous asian director that is not likely to be made anytime soon um but i got to write it and i got to join the guild and um yeah it's so interesting and i'd love to dive into yo is this racist oh yeah like how you developed it from a blog into a podcast how you brought tawny in oh yeah like what precipitated the hotline i have so many questions oh well that was from the jump yeah it was uh, you know that was also the way i'm going to describe it too is like what a it's just i think i got thrown in and i think it was a little bit because i'd like like, you know, was like a little older, like, not a little older, like a lot older for like starting out in like, you know, I was in like my, I was 32, 31, 32, something like that. Like, so like, that's old to like start. And I think there was this, a little bit of a perception that I knew more what I was doing or, you know, that like that whole time in my twenties, I'd been practicing something. (laughs) Anyway, I don't, I don't fucking know, but they were just like, yeah, let's just, Earwolf was like kind of looking to diversify their podcast at the time. So they were like, you want to show? And I was like, yeah, well, it could be this. And, um, what I, because the blog was Q and a, I was like, okay, well, it'll just always be, have a voicemail box and people will call in, ask their questions and, you know, can riff. And initially the, it was like, uh, five mini episodes per week. So like 10, you know, record for approximately an hour and like do a little intro outro and like, um, yeah so so like really like just short short episodes and that was an okay format um and then it kind of um you know in an effort to like make it a little more listenable kind of became closer to the format i don't remember when tawny came on but um someone at earwolf essentially was like hey what do you think about having a co-host and um tawny tawny newsome my co-host and and um I think when the co-host idea came up, I was like, I probably should be a black woman. Definitely one of the things that has been unfortunate, but understandable, but maybe not even that unfortunate is like people really, uh, not all people, but there, there is kind of like, um, a little bit of friction with an Asian person talking about racism, um, at all, uh, from time to time. So, there, you know, and, and I it definitely was exacerbated by like when I first started the blog, I was like totally anonymous. So like, it was just like people often assumed I was black um, because why else would you um, talk about race? There also was the association with the word yo with blackness, um, which 
I get. I don't totally buy, but I get. Yeah, so I really was like, it really ought to be a black woman. And Tawny, I think, had recently been a guest. And so somehow it was floated to her. And then she agreed to do it. I'm very lucky because of that. And then, yeah, we kind of like, uh, we're at Earwolf for a few years. And then um, we left Earwolf at the uh, beginning of 2021 or end of 2020. I don't remember exactly when. Earwolf had been like purchased by like Scripps and then Sirius. And um, we're, we're a, you know, okay sized show, but we're not like um, the Office Ladies or Conan O'Brien or something like that. Like we're not hosted by a household name I guess um and so sort of understandably it's like hard for people like the sales team to like really give a shit (laughs) um because why would they like it's just like for approximately the same amount of work you probably make your like quota by like selling one ad on Conan O'Brien or whatever so uh so so that was like one of those things that was like just like you know, a little, a little like hard to figure out. And then also like, um, we were sort of a weird fit creatively. Cause you know, obviously like, um, such a white network, not in a bad, this all feels like bad. Like it's, it's not like meant I mean, as an indictment, but it's just sort of the comedy community. Like yeah, yeah. writ large improvisers. Yeah, exactly. Like, it, I mean, it, it's like not any different than like, you know, it's, it's sort of an offshoot of UCB in many ways. Earwolf is and was, and like, it's reflected in that population. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's probably slightly more diverse than UCB actually. So you're independent now. Yeah. Yeah. Just, are you guys doing it on your own? Do you have like, did you, how did that go for you? How is it working out? Does it feel great? Um, yeah, it's, feeling it's wonderful i mean certainly um the ugh, the other part where it's just like it was like i was still in the mixed dish season when much of the heavy work for uh going independent happened so i do feel like a big debt of like i didn't do enough work um i didn't do enough work to help um but uh <laughs> we basically it's like very similar to patreon it isn't we use a different site um, and, and set of partners to get like our ads and um, for people to subscribe to. And this is how terrible my brain is. I'm actually going to open my email so I don't say the name of the company wrong. And it'll also be in our show notes yeah. and in description. So click. always click on that and support mm-hmm. Yo Is This Racist. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, so yeah. The, uh, yeah. Our thing is called Suboptimal Pods. But I was just, so yeah, we use a, a site called Gumball, which is like the head gum I think like add people and then oh god I'm so sorry I'm gonna have to just send a link later I don't or name yeah. I don't remember what the other the subscription thing is um and I will fuck it up if I try to guess we'll put links in the notes uh-huh. uh, and Twitter's gonna come for you and you're gonna be canceled yeah. I'm so sorry but thank we, you for this <laughs> I've been waiting to get to your Twitter feed because it's just so much fun to oh, follow god. you and see <laughs> all of the ways that you express indignation rage injustice and you're so fucking funny and it's so great and i think one of the main things that you've been tweeting about lately that i'd really like to know about because i lived in new york for a really long time but i moved 
I moved to LA just a few years ago, so I'm not in touch with the the mayoral politics there right now. But you hate Andrew Yang. Yeah, I'm not in touch with the mayoral politics. I so I have to say I hate Andrew Yang. There's a real chance he still is the best option. I just don't know. I suspect he isn't because he fucking sucks. But like, I don't know. I I know that mayors' races are dirty and mayoral candidates are horrible people. So like, is he more horrible than the average, uh, you know, Cuomo type? Is it Cuomo? I don't even know. I don't know uh, enough about De Blasio. Right De Blasio. Now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. fine. Uh, Cuomo's good. But is he worse than that? The average like person who wants to be mayor of New York, like I don't know, probably, possibly not. Um, but yeah, he, he Andrew Yang specifically really like um, got under my skin. I think early. I will say I think I identified that he fucking sucked um, before a lot of other people. Um, and, and the thing that got me was like. Because, you know, it just had this vague sense of like, oh, cool, it's nice that there's an Asian person out there um, making some kind of headway. And then I think I, you know, heard like, oh, he's proposing universal basic income. Well, that's amazingly progressive. Um, this was before, like, you know, I possibly before he'd released the fine print of it, but before I'd read it for sure. Uh, by the way, for any Yang heads out there, the fine print is basically like, um, yeah, instead of we'll do universal basic income but like every other social service will be cut it's just it's like literally like ross perot's flat tax of like social services it's just a scam to give um to have the government do less um so even his best thing is like stolen from other people and he made it the worst 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 net negative possible version of it um but i he came on my radar because you know, no, he'd been on my radar, but he he came to my like, what the fuck is wrong with this guy radar? Um, because he tweeted something to the effect of like, I'm proud to have, because at the time his polling was like, kind of like edge lords and like a significant number of Trump supporters. Yeah. Um, and he was like, I'm really proud to have all these Trump voters like like supporting me, like you know, and all this like humanity bullshit. Some would call that part of the game. Some would call that part of building enough of a yeah. base no matter what to yeah. reach your goals like whatever it takes i guess but it is truly it was just like like what the fuck are you talking about like and cause this wasn't like a time when it was like ambiguous what trump supporter you know i'm a person who since i was a kid was like like every republican is a fucking scumbag like you know i've been told many times you can't say that oh you can't do that oh it was like you know like no no Republican since I've been alive. Like, fucking Ronald Reagan? Like, what do you... Like, if you voted for Reagan, you're also a racist. Um, or white supremacist, whatever. Um, yeah, it was, it was like, he tweeted that, and I was like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I did not realize, you know, because of Asian Twitter enough, um, I was like, you know, at least Twitter friends with a couple people who were, like, deeply involved with his campaign, which I probably should have realized. Um, so they got really offended. That became a fight. You know, and it's like, as as you hear more from Andrew Yang, it is, like, just... Uh, I, I won't be able to give proper credit for this on Twitter, but, like, uh, from, it was something, uh, something I read on Twitter, and I just don't know who it is. But so the, the one of the most apt... Um, descriptions of Andrew Yang I've ever read is like he's like the Asian kid with like all white friends like in elementary school who's like 
when they're like, you're the ninja. He's like, yeah, I am the ninja. And like, we'll do the haya and just like really lean into like white supremacy, basically. That's where all the shit with like, you know, he's like math, like all this model minority shit. He like leans in so hard to the model minority stereotype. You know, I'm Asian, so I know doctors is like a line he said. And like, I don't know if you want to be like some kind of civil rights leader ish or like a public person of color, like how are you going to not understand that like model minority stuff is just a cudgel white people use invented to like um, beat down black people, basically black people and Latinos. It's like, like leaning into like those things are deeply anti-black. The fact that he doesn't seem to realize that is, is bad. And then, you know, every one of his policies as they came out and was like, Oh, you fucking suck. Um, you know, to the extent that he was like, during the presidential election, he was like, well, I'm really for like qualified immigrants, you know, or like, you know, immigrants that add value. The, uh, the humanity stuff, every time he says humanity, he's only basically trying to protect and talk about white supremacists. He's never, he doesn't have the same empathy for when like, you know, black lives matter concerns come up or anything like that. For some reason, his empathy only goes off when it's like racists. Um, Shane Gillis, he, you know, Shane Gillis, the fucking racist fuckhead who was like briefly hired at SNL when he got fired. Andrew Yang was like, I don't think he should be fired for that. Like, you know, those are just racist jokes he said on a podcast. I'm paraphrasing now, but, Mm -hmm. um, but it's like, Hey, you dumb fuck. Like, you know, you think you think Shane Gillis shouldn't be fired for all his like Asian jokes, uh, many of them directed at you. But like, are you like too stupid to understand that like, for instance, like Bowen Yang, the first Asian cast member in for uh, forever, like is going to have to be coworkers with this guy? Do you think Bowen should have to go through that? Like, it's just like this like humanity thing. His empathy only goes off for bigots, and it's like. Mm-hmm. That doesn't make you a bigger person. That makes you a fucking bootlicker, you idiot. Sorry, you you guys are very nicely allowing me to soapbox, but I think that's all my entry and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's 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 so fascinating to hear you um, just lay it out that that cleanly and clearly to understand that you know being a an apologist or you know someone who is understanding of multiple points of view can actually be a fucking terrible thing. Right. More often than not. Well, it's just, it, but that, that is the thing. It's that he sells himself as someone who understands multiple points of view, but he, he doesn't. He only sympathizes with, like, we'll call them the racists, but it's like the bigots of all stripes. You know, right. like, he's just like, it, and, and I think that is like, you know, sort of that, like, he's essentially like a white liberal tech bro. He just happens to be Asian. You know, he went mm. to fucking prep school. He's like a Silicon Valley dude. He like, you know, and that's why that that's it's the same way like the New York Times is like endlessly fascinated with racists, you know, in their editorial board and everything. It's like, oh, we talk to people in a diner. It's like, OK, but how often you don't give that same deference to the actual victims in our society or people for whom, you know, our society is routinely violent against, you know, there's not like the same number of like interviews with like unhoused folks or like you know black people who have been the victims of police violence like why why are you so endlessly fascinated and it's because like 
they live in a quasi-liberal bubble. You know, it's like these like liberal racists, but they're like, how could anyone be a fucking bigot like that? Oh my God, that's so interesting. And it's like- Because one of them makes you feel better about yourself and the other one makes you aware- Yeah, how bad, right. Like what you're complicit in. Yeah, right. It is like, and it, it is also just like, it's like, you know, you people, like, I, I have a classmate from college who's, like, you know, deep in the New York Times family. And, like, like realizing that you're, like, an Upper East Side rich kid or wherever the fuck rich kid he was from, it's like, oh, right, I'm from goddamn Michigan. Like, it's very evident, like, racists are not interesting and they're everywhere. And, like, if you're actually in that type of, like, class, like, liberal class bubble you actually don't know those people and they're interesting and then those people unfortunately get a chance to amplify that and like really like create this like salience and this like big like oh trump supporters are misunderstood it's like if they're not i'm sorry they're not they're like very very easy to understand i was just reading about something that you you'd written someone said you know you're making me feel bad about being white is that racist and you're like i don't know how to help you if there isn't enough in the world to make you feel good about being white like what the fuck (laughs) 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 it was great oh man yeah right it also is like like i mean it's that thing that that's why especially the blog of yo is this racist works because that was also much like shorter and like people would level this at me as a criticism but i would just be like it's not a criticism. This is like the the whole secret of it, which is like, it's so inflammatory. You're like, you're like cheapening the word racist. I mean, yeah, it should be inflammatory. The reason it's inflammatory is because it's like, you know, our, racism is cheap because the supply is very high. Like it ought to be cheap. And like you thinking that it has to be reserved for people burning crosses or whatever are the problem, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, Is this also why you don't like stand-up comedy? mm. Is because there's a... It's it's almost like white, rich, Republican comedy is stand-up comedy to a lot of the country. I feel... Mm. Yeah, it is that, like... And I'm speaking in absolutes that are unfair here, but... I do it all the time, and then I apologize. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh, I think for me, the thing with stand-up is that it's like, yeah, the faux objectivity of funny is funny. Like, funny is, people who say funny is funny are not. Um, like, like it is always <laughs> subjective. Like, it's, it, it it is like, this idea that, like, you think that, like, you know, the the main comedy club in, like, you know, fucking Lincoln, Nebraska... And the the fucking you know the store are like encompass all the range of humanity, and it's like yeah, you know, there's a lot more comedy out there, and one of the reasons it's mostly out there and not in here in these types of places is because like these environments like keep people out. They like keep points of view out. So and and not like utterly, but like you know, you still have to center, like, this particular type of, like, yeah, center to far-right viewpoint of, like, what Mm -hmm. comedy is. And, like, um, because it's, like, the same way that, like, you know, those folks, like, they're, like, 
well, this kills in wherever. And it's like, yeah, because that's your self-selecting audience. And like, I'm just saying like, it's always taste and there is nothing universal. And these people are like, but, but that stand-up comedy is like, pretends to hold objectivity, but isn't like there, you know, it's just one group of like, again, center to far right, like comedy. Um, that is like the main, like quote unquote, stand-up comedy. Um, and then the other part of it that I really don't like is like, the way it is like, to me, like akin to the closest thing I see to it is like, honestly, like the police, like the, the like brotherhood, cause it is mostly a brotherhood of like the brick wall or the, the, the stool and the mic stand is like, for some reason, a, a reason that I, you know, I've done a little bit of stand up comedy, but I don't understand why, you know, it's so tied to like, well, at least they're getting out there and saying it. And that's more important than anything else. I mean, I think the ugliest version of this is like, um, I guess I didn't even realize they were dating when this came out, but like, you know, Michelle Wolf did like shows with Louis CK during the pandemic. And thus I was like, what the fuck do you actually believe Michelle Wolf? Like, what is, what is wrong with you? Like, as in like, and you see this so often. It's like, it's like, you know, just honestly, the green room at any comedy club. I'm like, so those, this like truth telling you allegedly we're doing on stage doesn't matter when this like person with repellent views is next to you who has like, you know, it's the same way like everyone will kind of consider going on Joe Rogan, even though he is just like, you know, like a far right who person who like smokes weed. Um, like, it, it, it's just like, to me, I don't, I don't f- understand how the brotherhood is more important than the actual words. And to many like career stand-up comics, it feels like the brotherhood that, that is their calculus, mm-hmm. you know, never criticize a comic. That's like the same as like every cop's a good cop. Like what the fuck are you talking about? Like, I don't understand. I mean, yeah. And, uh, but I'm, Easy for me to say, because I have no love. I derive no, like, value or joy from doing stand-up comedy. I do think, though, when we first met at that show, I think your set was about Game of Thrones. Yeah. Yeah. And mine was about how I don't like that my tummy jiggles. (laughs) So, you know, there's also room for that kind of comedy on stage as well. No, absolutely. Yeah. Totally. And it is like, I have enjoyed stand-up and I like stand-ups, but I don't like stand-up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just like, I just think the culture of it holds like, again, and it's lucky for me because it's like so little value to, to me personally. And, but I'm also lucky that I'm like able to write and like, you know, have a podcast and do other stuff. So if that weren't the case, I don't know. Things might be different, I suppose. Um, but so it's one of those like easy for me to say. It's sort of similar to like on Yo! Is This Racist when I'm like, just tell your racist parents to fuck off. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, fucking easy for me to say. I know there's a lot of other shit <laughs> that yeah. goes on. Um, so Something I was talking to Mary Jane about yesterday that I'm kind of sensitive to right now is, do you know Katie Porter? If I mention Katie Porter, she has the whiteboards. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Rep yeah. Katie so Porter. Like, yeah. Katie, so I, so I was like, thinking of a, com- a comedian. I was like, yeah. Oh. Oh, but yes, yes, yes. The Congress uh, woman. Yes. Right. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I jump around a lot because my brain <laughs> is a kaleidoscope. Um, no, that's all right. Like, I'm really sensitive right now to people like her who I think are doing great work to try and make the world a better place and how quickly 
comedy takes her whiteboard and photoshops it into Mm -hmm. like Shrek having sex or like takes whatever is trying to create real positive change in the world and immediately comedy comes for that, gobbles it up and then spits out viral content that makes everybody laugh. And quite frankly, a lot of them are very creative and I get jealous sometimes because I can't think that way. Mm-hmm. But it also completely dilutes the the effort being put yeah. into making the world good. And so I'm I'm really struggling right now because I'm I'm I feel like we're at such a we're at such a fucking important point in, in our country. It's a serious time, right? Like so many of the people who are changing the world or doing any good are very fucking serious about it. And like you know in, in any realm, I mean, in the in the weed world, in the war on drugs, or in uh, mm-hmm. politics, or in any any activists are they have to be serious, so they're taken seriously. So where is the room for the artists and the funny people to do their jobs? It's just, and then you know, you hear about like people like fucking Joe Rogan saying he, he's not able to do his job because he's you know being told that he can't say whatever he wants to. Like the whole thing is just so fraught at the moment i i don't ascribe the same importance to comedy that i think a lot of the most bozo stand-ups do Mm. you know it's the way like prior changed the world you know carlin like shook up the doll thinking and it's like i mean you know they did a thing and they pointed out some things and they have the point of view but like i i think it's like giving giving like big social change and you see it on twitter actually in in this way which is like it it isn't actually the joke or the satire that's really gonna ring that bell and really make it happen it's just like no they're all parts of a point of view but like when you need to say something it's almost always it's always better to simply say it and like say it with humor maybe if that's the way you talk mm-hmm. um not not that it's even remotely the same but like you know the power people ascribe to like Stephen Colbert and like John Stewart back in the day it's like i mean i think that has been laid fairly bare at this point but it's like yeah that was like weak actually it was weak and like um pacifying and like you know did not uh help Right, because you could just be outraged at home in your armchair and feel like you did something because you were mad along with them, but that didn't make you do anything better. Yeah, and they also weren't that mad. (laughs) Like, like they didn't like like it was just that like ooh the hypocrisy of it and like you know, you know, Colbert was one of those. That was when I was working at Comedy Central, and I was like, this will never work as a parody of Bill O'Reilly because he can't be as fucking racist as Bill O'Reilly. Like, it's just like a bit, but it's like a buffoon it's not it doesn't actually the the punch is pulled because you cannot do the satire of what an actual repellent human being he is you know so you turn bill o'reilly like true white supremacist like angry horrible person bill o'reilly into just like i i have a big ego and i'm right wing like that's weak that's not strong that's like it, it does the opposite of of helping um in my opinion i guess i'm just like but yeah Comedy does things, it points out things, it gives you ways to look, you know, points of view, and and you can chuckle and, and like, come together about certain things. But, like, you know, it isn't, it isn't the driver of social change. And I think that's, like, that was what that, the boomer generation thought. They thought their fucking, like, heroes were the drivers of social change. And I think that's just not borne out by the facts. But even if those guys were, our guys are not. 
our people are not, I suppose. We're a little more diverse than they were. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think comedy is like a wonderful amplifier or an intensifier, but it isn't the thing. Um, and like, like all media. And I'm not saying it's not immensely powerful, blah, 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 of course. But like, it's, it's like, like treating, treating these folks as like gods is like, sort of like and also gods across every domain i mean i think one thing about like you know stand up too is like what should be happening is it lays bare that people are very compartmentalized in their thinking processes like the way like dave Chappelle can be amazing on race when it comes to black people and really you know just like no better than any right-wing comic on trans people is like it you know i do think like the trans stuff from dave Chappelle like diminishes him in my eye but that's partially because i like many people had elevated him too much right incisive and perfect in many ways on race mm-hmm. perfect with an asterisk i don't know i'm sure this shit i haven't watched many of his things recently but like you know i saw him live when he was like um working out that um uh, the first Netflix show, I think, or one of those. And I was like, you know, it's good when you know what you're talking about and it's real bad when you don't. And it's just evident which is which. Um, and that's like, okay. It's okay to not be perfect. It's maybe not as okay to be so immensely confident on everything. But that's, that is, to go back to other shit, that's like, that's Andrew Yang, that's Elon Musk, like, good in one domain, making, those guys, making money in Silicon Valley. Like, that doesn't mean you're good and on everything. And the weird thing where, I guess some level of success starts to tell you that you are equally good at everything is one, another sort of incredibly damaging thing. Like, I don't understand, it's so weird to me that, like, you can't just be like, I know, I'm good at one thing. I don't know about other shit. Mm-hmm. It's like Elon Musk weighing in on sociological stuff or race or anything. I'm like, you know, why? Why do you think you need to, your opinion matters? And, you know, I guess it's some combination of ego and whatever. Therapy, baby. Let's bring yeah. it back around yeah. and I do know, some yeah. That's, that's straight up therapy. And this conversation about perfection it makes me understand your viewpoint as being someone who just doesn't necessarily believe that uh, perfection is something that you should even strive for, that you should yeah. actually embrace all of the messiness and complicatedness of reality in life and not try to be perfect. I would say you're an imperfectionist. Yeah, well, because it, it's like, what's the, you know, what's the point of trying to be perfect? And, and like of acting like you are perfect. Acting like you are perfect is, you know, so damaging. We see it everywhere in our society. Mm-hmm. And then like, like the stress of not being perfect, I think is probably not good for people either. Yeah. Perfect is the enemy of the good, right? Yeah. I say that way too much in writer's rooms, actually. <laughs> it never lands, but I'm like, this is kind of a perfect as the end of made a good situation. Like, yeah, that's yeah. very hard to show on screen. But I'm like, yeah, no, I know. I'm just, but we're there, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> we're never quite there. Will you please plug everything you're excited about and share where everyone can find you? Also, other stuff that people should be aware of. Um, I mean, right now it is unfortunately just, uh, not unfortunately, but, uh, I think all I can talk about really is just Joseph's racist suboptimalpods.com is where you can subscribe to, you know, all the other stuff that we're doing. We do a show that's not about race, but it's still Tawny and I just talking. And then we have a, another tier that's like bundles, uh, 
most of my contribution to that tier is like uh, watch alongs of stuff. So you can see me, you can listen to me. Uh, my friend Cody Ziegler loves anime and I do not. And we've done a couple anime watch alongs that I, uh, people have told me are very amusing. Um, I hate it. Um, yeah. And then, yeah, unfortunately mixed dish uh, actually just got canceled. So, um, uh, that's sad for sure. I was really, you know, looking forward to working with everyone some more, but you know, I will again. And so, yeah, just figuring, figuring some stuff out and working on a thing that I hope I didn't say too much about already, but it's, it's relatively autobiographical and I'm really excited about it. Amazing. And next time we have you on, we'll have to talk about weed and food because yeah, we talked be, about so many other things. That would be great. <laughs> that would be wonderful. I think... Did I, this was this was off the record. I did have a moment where I first signed on to the Zoom, and I was like, "Was I supposed? Do I have to be stoned? Am I supposed to be stoned?" And I really thought I might literally have to find the gummy that is in my house somewhere. It's here. I would have found it. We'll come yeah. back. We'll talk about that next time. Thank anytime. you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is so fun. Thanks for letting me ramble. Apologies to the listeners. If you want to follow us, we are at Weed and Grub on Instagram. WG at WeedandGrub.com is our email. Please leave us a five-star review on Apple iTunes. Are you also, is Yo Is That Racist also Apple iTunes? They should leave a review there. It's everywhere. I, I guess yeah. so. Yeah. I mean, it is there. Yeah. Five-star yeah. reviews all around. Bye, everybody. <laughs> Thank Peace. you. Bye.